This episode is sponsored by NordVPN. Go to nordvpn.com slash cinema of meaning to start protecting yourself online and get four extra months when you sign up for the two-year plan. Hello and welcome to Cinema of Meaning, the podcast from myself, Thomas Flight, and my fellow video essayist and co-host Tom Vanderlinden from the channel Like Stories of Old. Uh, and we're here to explore the depths of what cinema has to offer. This week, we're going to scratch into the world of a horror slasher franchise, Scream, uh, that is now on its sixth installments. Before we get into that, this is a Nebula original podcast. I just want to mention that real quick. If you listen on Nebula, you get access to each episode an entire week early. You get access to the episodes without any ads, and you get access to our monthly bonus episode. Most recently, we did Fight Club. Before that, we did Damien Chazelle's Babylon. So there's a lot of discussions in there, episodes about interesting films that uh, you can only hear if you're listening on Nebula. The best way to get access to that is with the link in the description below. Signing up that way also helps support the podcast. So go check that out. Let's jump into Scream 6, though. Tom, this was kind of your idea to explore. Mm -hmm. And I did a little bit of a little bit of catching up. I watched yeah. I had never I had never seen a single Scream movie. So I watched the first one and I watched this Scream 6. Uh so there's a lot a bit of a hole in the missing middle. <laughs> in the middle. So you're going to have to be my guide to the parts of this franchise yeah. that I I'm missing out on. Have you seen every all six Scream Scream movies? I've seen all of them. Yeah, multiple times even. I think I rewatched the I had a really weird rewatch run uh, with this series. I watched the first one, I think two Halloweens ago, I decided to check that out again after having not seen it since being a teenager. And then uh, a couple of weeks ago, I saw the fourth one again. And then I rewatched the fifth one before seeing the sixth one. And after that, I decided, well, I'm almost done now. So I I'll also go back and rewatch the second and third. So yeah, I've seen them all twice now, at least, except for the sixth one. I've only seen that one once. It's not like my favorite series in cinema, but it is a series, especially in the in the horror genre that I've always really enjoyed. I think it's a very consistent franchise. It's like, I think the best movie in the series for me, it's still the first one. Like I, if I'd rank that, let's say an eight out of 10, uh, then the worst one in the series would be like a 6.5 or something. So there's, there's not a lot of fluctuation in quality. I think it's a very consistent series in that it always delivers at least something interesting. And I think it has to do with sort of this fundamental setup where you have this classic slasher elements but at the same time every movie is also this whodunit mystery which adds that little bit of extra extra pizzazz to it or something you know you know yeah. that extra little bit of that just holds your attention that grabs you and uh, draws you into the mystery um but the reason i wanted to discuss this and why i was slightly disappointed that you hadn't seen any of them yet is because it's <laughs> it's also just a very especially looking back on the series now as a whole it's a very interesting reflection on the evolution of sequels and how they can come to subvert certain tropes and then come to embrace them again and then subvert them again and so on and it's an interesting especially because the series itself is already or each movie in the series itself is already so 
meta and self-referential. It's a very, it's just an interesting series to kind of gauge the cinematic culture at the time, obviously with horror movies, but also beyond it. And so, yeah, that's why I wanted to talk about uh, the sixth movie, but also use that sixth movie kind of as an excuse to look back on this franchise as a whole. You came into this completely fresh. I'm kind of curious, like, what were your first impressions of the the first movie? This is an interesting exploration for me because yeah. I, I don't know if I've talked about on this podcast, like, my relationship to horror movies, but I didn't grow up watching them. And so it's kind of only something that I've started you know, exploring at all in adulthood. And a lot of them, like, a lot of it doesn't really appeal to me on the surface, especially more kind of stuff that's like slightly in this genre where it's a little bit more of like just a slasher film. I also haven't explored it that thoroughly. So, you know, I can't, I'm not passing judgment on it. I just don't have like experience with it. And I certainly don't have nostalgia with it. So it's interesting to come into this and especially to come into something that's kind of like already, I don't know if it's deconstructing that. I mean, to some extent, it's kind of deconstructing that genre a little bit. But mm-hmm. I I like, especially in the first one, the very meta elements of it and how it's playing with that. And I found it to be really interesting in that, at least from my perspective, it didn't seem like it was deconstructing or like those meta elements, it didn't seem like it was necessarily trying to like subvert the format entirely to me so much Mm -hmm. as to use those elements to like just make it a more uh, like more effective as a as a slasher film. So like it is being sort of meta. The two that I've seen are playing with sort of like a self-awareness, but then they're not taking that self-awareness and going, okay, we're going to take that and turn it into something other than a slasher movie. We're going to take that and just make it like work better as a slasher movie by kind of hanging a lampshade on all the different, different tropes. It's, it's not a complete farce of the genre. It's, it's not scary movie basically. The, the core of it is still sort of this like slasher horror film where there's these set pieces where somebody's running around trying to stab somebody else and the, mm-hmm. another person is trying to get away or fight back. And like, you know, that's the tension of like the central set pieces. And the fact that they kind of like openly acknowledge some of the tropes while they're doing that doesn't really like doesn't undercut the mm-hmm. tension of those uh, moments necessarily. So that's something I found really kind of fun about it. The movie's like, you're going to be scared because... I'm like, somebody's trying to stab you. That's the basic, like, and that's a scary thing. If that was happening in real life, you wouldn't want that to be happening. You'd be freaked out. And there's some part of me that's like, I see that happening in the movie and it like, my brain just shuts off. It's like, it doesn't, like, in Scream 6 is a great example of that where like, I was getting caught up in like the tension and suspense of the movie. And then there's what I think is actually like a pretty well put together set piece that I'm sure we'll talk about mm-hmm. the bit on the train. Oh, yeah, I could yeah. like, uh, as I was watching it in the theater, I was like, I can feel that I'm supposed to be freaked out by this. But then I was like, it didn't do that to mm. me. So I don't know if, something, if something's wrong with me, if I'm broken <laughs> as a person. <laughs> but it feels like the basic, like the basic formula of like what's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm when you're watching this, these movies doesn't happen to me. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm reading that wrong. And like, that's not actually 
why yeah. people are watching them. But I feel like I might be missing something. Hopefully I'll do an okay job of like discussing it anyway, but I just want to lay that out there as a mm. caveat. If some part of these movies aren't connecting with me, that might be why. I don't know. Mm. And because you haven't seen the middle fourth film movies. <laughs> middle four <laughs> movies. That might have something to do with it. I think I feel that way even a little bit about like the first one, although less mm. so. Like I did get a little bit more invested in the tension of like the suspense and the scariness of the first one, mm -hmm. the horror of it. It's not a series of movies that really makes you feel scared. I think at least they're not literally scary movies. I think like I don't watch them, right, right. you know, with like the like a blanket over my face because I'm just so afraid <laughs> of what's going to happen next. You know, there's other horror movies that really get to you on that more psychological level, whereas this one is a bit more of that, more the roller coaster type horror movie where it's more yeah, about the yeah. thrills and the suspense and but more like the surface level experience of that. And trying to figure out who it is. Yeah, yeah. And you know, with the meta elements, there's a certain lightheartedness to it where they, you know, there's an inherent absurdity with relating or equating a real life murder scenario with the rules right. and tropes of a horror <laughs> yeah. movie. You know, it doesn't... It's kind of a silly premise, but it it works because there's a certain lightheartedness to it, I guess. Even though I, I do want to say that still in that first movie, the first murder, like that is still for me one of the most genuinely tragic ones I've ever seen in a horror movie. It starts off in this kind of safe space where you're kind of lulled or the characters lulled into this false sense of security. And then you feel that twist where it turns into something more threatening and then you know the actual murder goes on for you know it's not just a stab and she's dead like it, it's this prolonged sequence where you you see her suffer and then her parents get home and they you know it's not like they immediately see the body but they get to you know you feel the, the fear that they are going through because they, you know they pick up the phone they hear the final breaths yeah. of her daughter and that to me was always a very yeah just a very moving scene that really left an impression with me i don't think yeah, the series yeah. has ever reached that level again but i do think that every time especially when a significant or more like a, a more important character gets killed you know they still always manage to make that a big deal yeah. that i think is some of the balancing act is really successful between on the one hand having enough lightheartedness and deconstruction and the sort of deadpool meta awareness to add a layer of levity to it all while at the same time not undermining the violence of the slasher movie so it can still have right, weight right. while also having the lightheartedness in the in the other aspect yeah so i think that's one big piece that's missing for me like mm -hmm. watching the bookends of this series yeah. would be like even um gail weather sh showing up like just having seen her in the first one, I'm like, oh, you know, you get that little feeling of like, hey, I know these people, which this is why the like franchises mm -hmm. like this become successful because they're tapping into like part of why TV can be such a powerful medium where just the more time you spend with a character, the more attached you get to them and the more invested you are in what happens to them and yeah. like what's going on with them. And so you can start to like play with those characters 
in interesting ways. It's meaningful when certain things are happening to them in a way that it wouldn't be if you just like started fresh with a completely new set of characters. But I think that's also to some extent kind of like where franchises get into murky water and they they kind of point to this a little bit in Scream 6 where there's the classic scene where they they kind of break down all the characters and what's going on. They yeah. realize they're in not a sequel or a requel, but like a, they're in a franchise and what yeah. that means, the implications that has for the characters. The interesting thing there is it like that scene points to this idea of how, you know, you have to start doing kind of more extreme or, you know, it gets trickier and more difficult to continue mm -hmm. to subvert expectations in interesting ways especially if that's like the thing that you're doing over and over again. Yeah. But then I think there's this other thing that can happen too, where it's like, because you can lean on those moments of like, Hey, here's this character that you recognize and they show up and they kind of have a built in, you sort of have a built in investment in who they are as a character and what happens to them. There can sometimes be like a little less impetus to like have to generate those things from the individual story itself or from the way that the the filmmaking like designs the scenes and mm -hmm. so like for someone who's seen the entire series you get carried by your emotional investment in the characters but it might not reach yeah. the heights that it would if you didn't have that to rely on because you'd be forced mm -hmm. to like you know create that investment through the the filmmaking itself this episode of Cinema of Meaning is sponsored by NordVPN. NordVPN can protect your security and privacy online with a single click. It's very easy to use on all your devices. It can also help you get access to content that you wouldn't have access to otherwise. For example, I've been traveling and I go to watch a show that I'm in the middle of, but because I'm in another country, my streaming service tells me you can't watch this show in the country you're in currently. You can use a VPN to log back into that streaming service through your home country and watch content like you normally would no matter where you are in the world. It's very useful if you uh, want to stay on top of your shows even while you're traveling. One of the features I really like about NordVPN is that it offers users a dedicated IP so you can still have the VPN turned on and get the security benefits, but you can still run everything through the same dedicated IP address. Sign up and check it out today. Protect yourself online. Make using the internet a little bit easier for yourself. Get an exclusive deal when you go to nordvpn.com slash cinema of meaning and give it a try for 30 days risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. When you sign up for the two-year plan using our link, you'll get four bonus months on top of that. To get that deal, go to nordvpn.com slash cinema of meaning or click the link in the show notes below. Thanks again to NordVPN for sponsoring this podcast. How did you feel about how this one fit into the, the arc of the franchise as a whole? I enjoyed the sixth one, even though I had some mixed feelings about it, but they, I think they mostly came from me not having any real expectation for this series anymore. Like I'm not, I'm no longer sure what it is that I want to get out of this, except for more <laughs> yeah. than what it's already. But, you know, yeah, that's, as you said, that's part of this, this particular story where it's now recognizing, oh, now we're a franchise. And now for me, at least with franchises, you know, whether it's Marvel or Star Wars, you know, you're going to have franchise fatigue and 
And even if you're meta aware about it, that doesn't make it fresh again. So that's something I kind of struggled with. Whereas at the same time, I was interested in the way they kind of tackled franchise fatigue and the kind of struggle to keep things interesting, while at the same time also feeling the exact downsides of what that means. You know, they still cannot escape being the sixth movie in a series that's been running for more than two decades now, where there aren't that many more new directions to go to. Uh, this one did set itself apart. Maybe uh, you didn't realize that as um, strongly because you haven't seen the other ones. Uh, by being the first that's now set in New York City. So it's a very different uh, location. Whereas the previous movies all came back in some way or another to the original town uh, that the first one takes place in. Woodsboro, I think right. it was called. Maybe it would be fun yeah. to kind of walk along the sequels, see how they fit into the, the sort of larger evolution of the series and its commentary on sequels in general and then see how Scream 6 fits into it. Because I think the first the first two sequels were very much of that era where sequels were still kind of a gamble and kind of an effort with diminishing returns, even though I think for the Scream series in particular, they still did quite well at the box office, even though critically, I think each movie or each subsequent movie was received with a little bit less praise. I'm not sure about like the, I think the profit margins probably declined a little bit because the budget did go up with each sequel, but I think the overall gross remained about the same. But yeah, so we had the the original, the, the one that established it all, that kind of commented on the horror tropes, the... Uh, the slasher movie plus the whodunit plus some social commentary usually. The second one was then obviously this, the one that directly comments on the nature of sequels in that area where, you know, the the nerd character from the move, first movie, he was still there and he kind of loudly proclaims, oh, sequels suck. And, and they kind of <laughs> right. bring up the question if, because this is also in the universe of Scream, there's also the series Stab. The, the stab movies and so right. that's kind yeah. of what happens in the of what is revealed in the second film in real life is that now based on the events of the first movie they've made a movie called stab and so that in the second movie that kind of brings up the question of whether or not violence in horror movies inspires violence in real life i feel that discussion isn't as relevant anymore as at least it's not being treated with the same kind of urgency as it may have been in the 80s or 90s it's kind of brought up but yeah it's not in a way that i think is really interesting to talk about now if people have any anxiety about violence in media generating like real life violence it's usually video games or like or if it was horror movies in the 90s and early 2000s it's like video games in the mid 2000s through you know 2014 or something like that and then it feels like the discourse kind of shifted even more so towards like online media or social media and depictions of violence online and how that might impact people mm -hmm. so the, it's a discussion that's ongoing but it just kind of shifts over time to whatever more the dominant like yeah. medium is we feel pretty disconnected i think from at least in like the u.s a lot of the violence that is perpetrated by young people doesn't look anything like the kind of violence you would see in horror movies most you know most yeah, of yeah. the time so that like impulse that the horror movie might still be generating some kind of violent behavior seems at least directly you know 
uh, mm. seems pretty, I guess, falsified at this point yeah. or like we feel pretty disconnected from that. There's mm. like a broader commentary than just the harder horror movies themselves, at least in the first film and the sixth one from what I've seen where you have like Gail Weathers character and she's writing books and she's, you know, part of the news media. And so there's a little bit of this like broader context of just media about violence and mm -hmm. murder yeah. in general. Yeah, turning it into sensationalism and uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That does also come back in the second movie where you don't mind if I spoil all the, the killer reveals because the kind of funny thing about the sixth movie is that it goes back it's, to all the them anyway. literally every killer from the, <laughs> yeah. the previous film is sort of revealed there. So I'm, I'm if you're if you're listening to this, I'm assuming you have watched the sixth movie and therefore also know, even if you haven't seen the previous films, that you still know who the killers were because it's, right. it's talked about pretty explicitly. Openly, yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll keep it sort of vague-ish but there's again two killers in the second movie one of which is just out for revenge which is the more apparently the more traditional sequel type motive which we also see in the sixth movie where where the killers turn out to be acting in direct reaction to what happened in scream five and and also a their motive being uh, i think they even literally call it like good old-fashioned revenge or that may have been in the second movie. I don't remember. It's been kind of a blur. <laughs> I don't think they say good old fashioned revenge in six. That I yeah, now, now that I think of it, I think that was in the second movie. Because in the second movie, you have this character that wants revenge on Sydney, the, the main character of the first one. And she works together, or the killer, who is the mother of the murderer in the first movie. In the first movie, it was Billy Loomis working with Stu, I think his name was, but primarily Billy Lewis, who he was the boyfriend of uh, Sydney, and she kills him at in the end. And so in the second movie, there's a sort of Friday the Thirteenth homage going on, where now the mother goes on a rampage, and she works together with another guy, and he is going back to like the spectacle and the sensationalism. He is out to achieve exactly that. You know, he wants to be caught, even like he wants to be in the spotlight and he says at some point like nowadays it's all about you know the murder is not good enough anymore it's all about the trial it's all about the the appearance that comes afterwards and that's kind of where the second movie ends up and then the third movie there's this joke at some point where the nerdy character at one point he comes back and he talks about oh if it's not a sequel then you know same rules as the last time but if you're getting like inexplicable messages from the past which happens in the third movie where sydney's mother's past now comes back to haunt her in some way that means you're now dealing with a trilogy or with the final entry of a trilogy and because right. those are all about going back to the beginning you know the return of the jedi the godfather part three they're all about going back to where it started and so there's only one killer in this movie and he turned out to be sydney's long lost brother which is kind of, yeah, you know, that's where it starts to stretch a little bit into the kind of realm of fiction, I would say. Like that that's when it becomes clear, oh yeah, this is kind of, now we're watching a story with tropes instead of, even though it's meta-aware, it's still really uh, adhering to the soap opera-ishness of it all. Right, almost. right. Even though it's still, it's, it's still a pretty decent movie and as subtly ridiculous as the premise is they do pull it off in a way that doesn't feel too contrived 
but yeah, it is, you know, they set up the rules for the, for the trilogy or the, the third entry in the trilogy, and they end up playing that out pretty much by the book. That movie also pretty much wrapped up everything because it was supposed to be the end of the trilogy. And so then 10 years later, we get Scream 4. And this one, especially in hindsight, is really interesting because it was also the last one that was still directed by Wes Craven, the director of the original movie. Mm-hmm. And looking at this one now, it actually feels more predictive almost rather than reactive to horror tropes of the time because Scream 4 really felt like the early legacy sequels before they were called that. You know, you had a John Rambo film at that time or around that time or the Rocky Balboa one. I don't know why I'm only thinking of Sylvester Stallone movies now, but, (laughs) you know, there was a moment before, you know, The Force Awakens, before the legacy sequel became a full thing where older franchises were already being revived, but it was more of this, let's give these old heroes one last run. And that's kind of what the fourth movie feels like. It still had the original cast, but it also had some new faces already. So there was already that element of the legacy sequel where we both have new characters as well as legacy characters. But so funnily enough, it was commenting on some aspects of that, but it wasn't quite yet uh, ready to articulate what it really was in terms of the legacy sequels that we came to know later. Right. But I think the fourth movie actually had the most, or maybe not the most, but at least one of the most interesting social commentaries because that's the one that really dives into the role that social media has come to play in the years ever since the first trilogy. And there the motive is from someone who doesn't want to be a killer or she is someone who basically stages the whole thing so she can be the victim because she says, you know, in this day and age or they all have the we live in a society speech at some point. Uh, the killers. <laughs> yeah. and, and her deal is, you know, you no longer have to have friends. You need to have fans, which I thought was a really interesting commentary or at least it changed it captured a specific cultural change from the first three movies and aside from that it was just also a really i think a pretty well done movie especially for the fourth one in the sequel i think it's almost 10 years later again before we get the fifth movie and this one is the one that clearly came out after the new star wars sequels because this one is a full-on requel they call it or legacy sequel in the movie they say that the exact terms are still being debated but i'm not sure if i i often see people talk about requels i I think legacy sequel is more common at this point yeah i knew what they meant when they were saying that in scream six but i was like i don't think i've actually heard that used very often yeah so yeah in the fifth movie that's what they talk about explicitly that now franchises are being rebooted but not just for the old audiences, but also specifically for the new audiences. So they have legacy characters to satisfy the nostalgia of the older generation while also doing a soft reboot with new characters and younger faces for the new generation. So it's kind of in between a reboot and a sequel. So that's hence the legacy sequel. And yeah, it's also, it's a soft reboot in the sense that it's a very loose retelling of the first movie we have that's when we are introduced to the main character that's also the main character in part six. She kind of feels like a Rey Skywalker character in the sense that she is this innocent, young, new face 
who has a link to the legacy characters and in both cases also specifically to the villains of the legacy sequels because you know ray is the palpatine granddaughter or something and sam the new character in the scream movies or in, introduced in scream 5 she is the daughter of billy loomis the murderer of the first movie so that's yeah kind of uh, the, the link the bridge between the past and present and then uh the way the fifth movie plays out it's sort of similar to the first one where you have this kind of funny moment where they introduce Dewey again, the legacy sheriff character from the first three movies, the first four movies actually. Uh, And he immediately says like, don't trust the love interest while her boyfriend is sitting right next to her. And then in the end, of course, it turns out the boyfriend is the killer just like it was in the first movie. And there's also the sort of struggle with Or you can see at this point that they've subverted all the tropes. So now they kind of have to re-subvert them. (laughs) (laughs) Because now the unexpected, not even sure in which movie they say this anymore, but now they kind of struggle with the unexpected has become the expected. So now you have to kind of go back to the cliches again or something, or do the thing that's expected in order, which is now the unexpected again. Yeah, and the, the fifth movie also had its... Uh, Force Awakens type moment where one of the big legacy characters is killed off. In The Force Awakens, it was uh, Han Solo. In the fifth movie, it was Dewey, unfortunately. Uh, And they even make like a big deal about it where you have the ghost face, he stabs Dewey. And then, you know, as he collapses, the ghost face whispers to him, you know, it it was an honor in his creepy ghost voice. Like, it's sort of, it's paying direct homage to the importance of the character because he also has in-universe value because the the original story is revered so much by the killers and then i also really like the social commentary that comes out of this at the end because that's what is revealed is that it's the boyfriend is the killer the the guy who also plays in the boys the the main character richie he is called in this uh series but he turns out to be this really toxic fan of the original stab movies and of you know the the whole story behind it which also was obviously a very big deal with legacy sequels Uh, you know with the new star wars movies obviously came out with tons of controversies mixed reactions toxic fandom discussions that sort of stuff so and that's what he kind of embodied you know he was dissatisfied with the way the stab movies were going and so he wanted them to go back to the basics which was based on a true murder a story which he then just handed to them basically he wanted to hand them to it and that brings us to the sixth movie which is then i guess the sort of last jedi to scream five or what the last jedi was to uh the force awakens even though i think the sixth movie is less subversive to the fifth movie than the last jedi was to the force awakens but you do see again you know in the because in the fifth movie, they killed off one of the legacy characters. In the sixth movie, you know, it would be a little bit contrived to do it again. And so that's why I think it's hinted that Gil, even though she is critically wounded and she seems to be getting her grand moment of death in this movie, she actually survives. Or it's hinted clearly that she is going to make it through this one. Right. And that's, that may also made me think of The Last Jedi, where you have this, you know, The Force Awakens killed off. Uh, Han Solo but The Last Jedi it seems like they were going to kill off Leia but then she turned out to be fine 
or fine. Right, At least right. he survived in the movie, that is. And you do have Luke Skywalker, I guess, ending up dying at the end. But anyways, there's this sense or this feeling that, okay, we killed off one of the big ones. We're not going to do it again because that would feel a little bit like too much. Or at some point you just, it, it becomes a little bit, I don't want to say torturous to the audience, but you know, it's also, you don't want to have that story where the legacy characters just stay in the series to be eventually cannon fodder for some new interesting twist or sh moment of shock value. So I'm glad the series recognizes that that's not a desired way to go and that sometimes it's also nice to give some characters a nice way out, which I guess happens to Sydney because she, there were other reasons why she isn't in the movie more contract issues or payment issues or something like that. But I'm actually kind of glad that she wasn't in this at all. And to be honest, I didn't really miss her. I think at some point it's just, yeah, this is also where we again come to the issue of franchise fatigue and what is it that you want from these sequels and seeing the main character being dragged in another murder mayhem story, you know, six times in a row that it just becomes uh, a little bit too much because Sydney was still there in the Scream 5, by the way. Mm -hmm. So at this okay. point she had been through this whole through ordeal five five, <laughs> yeah, five separate times <laughs> so yeah at some point it's it's, it's enough and so I, I like that they went with the new characters that they established the characters in the fifth movie and then con continued with them in the sixth one they call themselves the core four in this one those were the characters that were carried over from the fifth movie there's also a it's not exactly a cameo, cameo because it is a she she is a much more invested character in this story but there's the character uh kirby from the fourth movie she was still one of the students in that story she got stabbed but she survived and so in now here she is brought back as this surprise appearance i think even though i'd seen the, the fourth movie not too long ago i already had to look twice like wait who was she again and <laughs> she did change her appearance a bit and i guess it's been 10 years so she doesn't look exactly the same but yeah that's my very brief history of the scream saga the and scream franchise yeah how they evolved over time what they reflected on what kind of social commentary they captured and so yeah that brings us to movie six how does this one land for you in the midst of that franchise i guess mm -hmm. i'm asking both in terms of like where does this just as a standalone movie rank up quality wise mm -hmm. you feel against the rest and then also for someone who's seen all of them, it, mm -hmm. you know, it does, is this sort of like meta awareness of the franchise formula, is that enough for you to like keep things fresh? Or do you think you start to feel franchise fatigue even in the midst of that? I think just as an individual movie, as I said, I think this is a very consistent series and I had fun with this one. I had some, I think the the change in setting had some pros and cons for me. I think the main thing that I missed because of it is was what you really saw in the first movie is that it, I think at least that it really captured this feeling of a community that's overcome by this event like it's not just in the first movie it's not something that just happens to a few characters who were involved but it's it, it's really the whole collective that's basically being terrorized and you the movie does that really well the way it just 
conveys that it's this whole community that's now on edge, uh, that's afraid, that doesn't know what's going to happen, that doesn't know who's being targeted and why. Uh, because, you know, in the first movie, all these interpersonal connections weren't yet so clear. And that's what I was missing a little bit come part six, where now the killer is targeting very specific individuals uh, and the characters seem to know that. And New York is obviously a much more anonymous place. You can have this whole personal tragedy and, you know, everyone, no one around you will even notice. Having said that, I think that also plays into its strength where it loses like one aspect of fear you know that kind of collective experience of fear it does trade that in for another kind of fear which is the feeling of isolation even within large groups of people and that i think it can be scary as well and i think that becomes especially clear in um, that uh, subway sequence that you mentioned which i think is one of the best parts of the movie where you know, you have all these anonymous ghost faces and, you know, you're surrounded by more people than ever, but at the same time, you cannot trust a single one of them. And right. that I think was really interesting about this new place. The subway sequence did that really well. I mentioned how like the suspense towards the end of that sequence didn't exactly pay off for me, but I think the the setup of it was really effective in kind of capturing that feeling of if you've ever been on a subway and you... Mm -hmm. Most of the time, stabbings aren't happening on subways, fortunately. But like, it, there's this feeling you have when you're on a subway if you think about the situation you're in a little bit too hard, where you're like, oh, I am just kind of relying, especially if it's a packed one, you're relying on just a certain amount of trust that like everybody's just going to kind of remain calm, rational, and not just start like doing crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it can be this very like, vulnerable situation that you're in where you're essentially just rely you're trapped in this box that's moving and you can't escape and like you're you're in there with a lot of other people and you're just kind of relying on trust so i think it plays on some of the dynamic of that environment in a really interesting way yeah the other scene that i felt like played on that dynamic really well though that that was maybe my favorite is when they run into the little like convenience store bodega place oh yeah or whatever you would call it and ghost faces after them they they bust in there they're like screaming saying help and this guy steps up to him and in my mind i'm like i'm like oh you know this environment is safe like there's all these people there you know he's not gonna he's after these two specific girls so he's gonna mm -hmm. be like scared off and just gonna walk away but he just immediately like stabs through the other guy and just like takes down the whole store. People go running out and yeah. like this safety that they thought they were going to find in the other people just completely evaporates immediately. That was a yeah, really yeah. like subversive move that I found, you know, very tense and I thought played played really interestingly. Mm -hmm. I liked that scene, but at the same time, that's also the one where it started to test my suspension of disbelief a little bit because you know in the first movies the killer was always this ordinary citizen who wasn't necessarily very strong or particularly capable at killing and so that's why a lot of the struggles with the victims throughout the series they are kind of clumsy and the killer is 
you know, <laughs> yeah, often like yeah. failing a little bit. He can get decked out really yeah. easily. But then in the sixth movie, when he started just massacring his way through that convenience store, I was like, eh, it's kind of stretching it a little bit for me. But the end reveal did make me change my mind about that a little bit because it was revealed that one of the killers, at least I'm guessing that was the one in the convenience store, was this cop who must right. have had some fighting you know it's it's more logical for someone like that to have had fighting experience and sizable enough to take on a few guys even if he's armed with a knife whereas some of the other killers in the previous movies they definitely did not look capable of really winning a one-on-one uh, confrontation if it came to it or if they met someone who had like one year of kickboxing experience or something but there were other few moments where i was like where my suspension of disbelief was tested a little bit. Like they still do that thing where they struggled against the ghost face and then knock him out temporarily. And then I'm not sure how, what's the best way to explain this, but I felt like there were a lot of moments where they could have stopped and finished the job. But instead they, there were more than one occasion where they knocked the ghost face down or out. And then they decided to run away instead of, like, okay, now let's take a moment. Right, right. Smash like uh, something heavy on his head or just to make sure he's not going to get up again. Because that's something in the previous movies, especially Sydney's character was someone who was, especially after the first movie, who did have that, you know, that meta awareness and therefore that cleverness about never taking for granted that she has in fact disabled this threat to her life. But she also, she always had to go back and make sure. And that I felt was a little bit of a shame that this movie was, you know, more loose with that and where they just kind of did, I'm guessing it's for writing convenience that, you know, at some point characters have to end up in, in another place. But yeah, there were just a few moments where I felt like the characters weren't as clever as they used to, even though the series is all about characters who do have that meta awareness that should make them more clever and act differently than the typical horror story. Yeah, that being said, I don't think this is a movie I'm going to be re-watching anytime soon. I did feel like, especially compared to the fifth movie and uh, the other ones as well, like this one was lacking a bit in that social commentary where Scream 5 was really about this toxic fandom. And then Scream 6 is about the same as Scream 2, just about the revenge again. And it didn't feel like in doing so they captured something deeper on that more cultural, social-political level that they at least had some awareness of in the previous movies. There's these themes in here about sort of Sam being famous for, you know, people thinking she is a murderer and kind of being famous for that. And she talks about, you know, not that fame not really being a positive thing. And so there's a little bit of commentary in there about, you know, the nature of internet fame. I don't know how much of that is unique to this compared to maybe Scream 4. But then there's also this element of kind of whether or not through her revenge, she is sort of becoming a killer herself, you know, is this point of ambiguity to the point where she even puts on the ghost face costume herself and it kind of blurs these lines between fighting back and sort of becoming the thing yourself, which I, you know, I appreciated on some level. I thought that's that's definitely interesting territory to play with, but mm-hmm. I don't know if it ends up saying anything kind yeah. of that deep about that. I feel like that part to me 
that was sort of present in the fifth movie where she had these visions of Billy Loomis as this sort of psychotic voice in her head. But it feels a little bit like a fake out to me, like in, in the same way that Ray struggles with the dark side or Luke struggles with the dark side, even though you know on some level, oh, they're never going to be truly evil. You know, that's never going to lead anywhere, but a rejection of that darkness. And the fifth movie already covered that ground a little bit. And then the sixth one just retreaded it. There is that small suggestion at the end that there might be something evil-ish in Sam. But I don't know, unless they use a, another sequel to really go for that. You know, I'm I'm not really all that invested in it as this sort of fake struggle with a choice that's not really there. You know, if she's never going to be truly evil or capable of being a psychotic murderer, then I'm not sure what the point is of that struggle, aside from adding surface layer tension to a story that's really about something else. I think there's some amount of question in there about whether, you know, even defense can like blur into some of the same psychological territory as murder itself. I'm not making a moral like equivalency between the two, but she talks to the therapist about getting revenge and having liked it. And in my mind, you know, the question there is less like, is she herself going to turn into the murderer? But mm-hmm. it's more like in these acts of defense, is she engaging in something similar to the murder itself? Like she's still killing people, even though she's defending herself, does that, you know, maybe affect you on some level, even if you're, you're morally less culpable than, than yeah, yeah. somebody who's just murdering, you know, but like, do those lines start to blur somewhere in terms of like, psychologically, how it might impact you. And like, I think that's there in, in how she present like the revenge is presented it's not just as like oh she's just getting the job done Mm. using the bare minimum amount of force necessary yeah to like take care of the situation then she can get out of there it's like no she's like she's engaging in the act of like killing the the mainly the the last guy they killed the, the police officer i'm forgetting his name but like she's engaging in the act of killing him with the same like intensity and vigor that like mm-hmm. any of the other ghost face characters normally would. I thought that was a little bit interesting. Yeah. I, I find it more interesting in the context of, uh, because that, I guess that's something that this movie does bring up, but then sort of discard towards the end. And that's the fact that Sam is now the subject of various uh, conspiracy theories and right. alternate internet ideologies and communities that kind of, frame her as this secret villain, which um, I think is a very relevant topic now. Of course, when uh, I don't have any specific examples off the top of my mind, but there's obviously a lot of dangerous narratives going on online or that can happen online wherein certain individuals become framed as these villainous characters, even though it might all be based on false information. I, I liked that premise, but then at the end, I I was kind of disappointed in the way uh, the killers, I think quite literally, dismissed it. That's like, oh yeah, there's some conspiracy nuts online, but we're just getting the revenge because uh, our son was the one that you killed and now we're going to kill you. So it it felt like there wasn't 
there was a setup without a payoff there for me. Um, but I can imagine if Sam really was to be, you know, quote unquote, cancelled or be, you know, continuously the subject of this dark conspiracy theory or story like at what point does it start does she start believing it so i can kind of imagine a sequel turning her story into a tragedy just because she because everyone around her starts imposing this reality on her to the point where she or at least it becomes close to the point where she becomes comes to inhabit it you know in some of the way that maybe some right. moderate right-wing figures have grown more radically right over the years just because they felt like they had no choice but to adopt maybe a persona that was crafted for them by people around them or by the internet around them where in their perception at least you know you often see this meme where it's the left that pushes people to the right and then the the, the extreme right is there standing with open arms which is not an meme that I particularly agree with, but at least I, I do think you can, with some people, you can observe that movement from being a figure in, you know, in, in, in one particular area of social political culture and then being pushed into a more radical version of that uh, just by virtue of, you know, maybe some group pushing you in that direction and maybe, or maybe some, some other group pulling you into it. Or just, yeah, audience capture where like you see what you, appeals to the audience that you have and then you create more that appeals to that audience mm -hmm. and that kind of just trends you in a direction that appeals to the loudest, you know, yeah. most extreme version of your audience. This movie, though, to me, I don't feel like really engaged with that much. Like no. it's yeah. kind of there in the background. It sort of suggests it. It's like, oh, she's famous. But then we have no, like no real concept of besides the fact that somebody recognizes her enough to th throw mm -hmm. uh diet Dr. Pepper or whatever on her in mm -hmm. the street that we have no real like look into. I think we maybe see like one or two images of like what's happening on the internet yeah. kind of around mm -hmm. this. So the context is there in the background. I, you know, maybe the context of scream five uh, helps set that up a little bit better, but. I don't think it had anything that fleshed out, I guess, to, yeah. to say about that besides just like, you know, suggesting that it's mm -hmm. there in the background. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's more like talking about this, this movie's place in the larger franchise. Like if this is another new trilogy, like five, six and seven, right? like I can yeah. imagine movie six, or at least I'd be interested in a movie six that deals more explicitly with subjects like this if they make a movie seven i hope they kind of continue down that path and then flesh that out yeah. a little bit more because yeah, yeah as you said i think the seeds are planted here but there's, there's nothing that really comes to fruition um in in part six yeah. so yeah i can imagine there will be a seventh movie to have like the the equivalent to the rise of skywalker <laughs> to, to right. kind of round up the face whatever of this and then after that you have the uh the multiverse stage of the scream cinematic universe yeah then you have to go into the the aftermath of having successfully completed a legacy sequel and now you're struggling to rekindle that same fire again but yeah i hope at some point they'll just let it die out and then uh, instead of milking it until <laughs> there's absolutely nothing left of it but 
But yeah, in, in summation, um, <laughs> I feel like we haven't even talked that much about the sixth movie now. But yeah, I, I think it's just, it, it's still an interesting, entertaining movie. Um, I liked the opening sequence of this one, where it seemed to have this major subversion, where for the first time it would reveal the ghost face in the opening sequence instead of uh, at right. the end. But uh, it was kind of a fake out ending, which uh, has happened before. The fourth movie had this opening sequence, which then turned out to be the opening sequence of the stab movie that was being watched by the actual characters. And then there was another murder. And I think they do it like two times. There's three separate scenes where only the third one is the actual one. And the other two are just stab movie scenes, but um but yeah I, I liked the way the sixth movie had an had an interesting opening that kind of caught my attention and an interesting new setting some new characters or at least the continuation of the new characters and um yeah it, it still had some some stuff to say i guess and uh I, i'm interested in the, the sixth movie was good enough that i'm interested in a seventh movie and so that uh I guess it's uh, more than some other legacy sequels uh, can say. It definitely like helps itself by having this very light on its feet, not taking itself too seriously vibe, uh, which I can certainly appreciate. I enjoyed the first one a lot and thought that, you know, it it used a lot of those meta elements in like a really really fun way i think like that still kind of existed here but i i wanted like a little bit more of playing with that you know or trying to update that i don't i don't know what that would have looked like but you know trying to update that for this you know a fresh round you know i feel like you could do you could do some kind of maybe maybe five does this but you could start to play on some of the tropes that have appeared in newer like horror films that involve uh like mm -hmm. cell phones and text messaging and stuff like yeah. that the fifth one does that a little bit and it also does that okay it has it has a similar opening scene as the first one where you have this character who's called at home asked what their favorite scary movie is and then they uh the victim uh, starts talking about i think she liked the babadook like she starts talking about elevated horror and how slasher right, movies right. are kind of over and done with. But yeah, and yeah. Uh, there's some stuff with the cell phone where they have these app-controlled security things on the doors that go keep going, like, unlocked, and then she has to lock them real fast again, and then they go unlocked again. And, you know, there is, you know, the new technologies are kind of woven in, in there. We've already been talking about the series on uh, our Discord channel, which you can join as well, if you want to talk more about the Scream franchise, we'd love to get deeper into it. And uh, let's see if we can get Thomas to watch all the other ones. <laughs> if we can get me to go back, <laughs> even though they've all been spoiled for me at this point. I'll try to I'll try to mind wipe the yeah. uh, the, the spoilers. You, you can wait a few months so then the, the memory becomes blurry and you might forget yes. just enough to uh, to go in sort of unknowingly, sort of ignorant, but... I'll do it just in time for Scream 7. Yeah. Yeah, in the run-up to that. I'll, I'll binge through all yeah. previous six movies. Let us know also what your favorite Scream movie is. I'd be curious to know and how you feel about what the different entries have to say. The link to our Discord server is in the show notes, uh, so check that out. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. 
If you enjoyed this, again, like Tom said, check out the Discord server for more discussion. You can also sign up for Nebula. Link is in the description below. That'll get you access to next week's episode right now. Go ahead and listen to it. Uh, or you can also listen to our bonus episode. Last month we did Fight Club, as I mentioned. Really interesting discussion there. So, uh, so check that out, and we'll talk to you next week.